Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. Thanks so much for tuning back into the show. On this week's show, we're going to talk about data visualization interactivity and scrolly telling and all the things that move around on your favorite website. And I was inspired to have an episode about this because of my guest's great article that she recently wrote for Source. So I'm really excited to have Eileen Webb, who's the Director of Strategy and Livestock at WebMeadow, to help me talk about her recent article on Source, Your Interactives Make Me Sick, which is, by the way, Eileen, a great, a great title. Thank you. Um, and also all this other stuff about interactivity. So Eileen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Um, Yes. And I'm excited we get to chat because I love this piece because you take a perspective on interactives that I hadn't really considered before. So it's great to sort of like, I think our views line up perfectly, but each from like different sides, which is great. But before we talk more about the piece and, and other things, could you take a moment and just talk a little bit about yourself so people know uh, who you are and where you're coming from? Sure. So uh, I am a content strategist um, focused a lot on structures and systems and CMSs and things like that. Um, so if you're a person who writes, I am, uh, I'm the person who sort of advocates for you having a nice experience to actually put stuff into the CMS. Um, my background is as like a backend programmer for CMSs. Um, and then I shifted into doing strategy stuff because I like telling people what to do. And um, for the purposes of this conversation, uh, another piece of background for me is that I have had migraines um, since I, well, since puberty, really. So like 25, 30 years at this point. Mm -hmm. And I have chronic migraines, which means that I have about 50, 60% of my days are days that I have headaches um, in any given month. And so I'm very sensitive to motion and uh, sort of bright lights and sounds and all kinds of things just all the time. I have a very sensitive neurology. Right. You're a sensitive person. I can, I can tell. A delicate flower. Just in the two like minutes we've been talking. So you've identified some of the triggers for yourself that trigger some of these migraines. And clearly your work on making CMSs better and helping people make better sites, I would assume is partly born out of that. So can you talk a little bit about this article on Source, about how websites make you and others who might have vision or motion uh, challenges, how it might make that experience, well, I guess in your case, nauseating. Yeah, sure. So yeah, so I, I'm a big nerd, right? Like I like data. I like data sets. Uh, I like graphs and charts and things. And so when people come out with cool, like scrolly telling articles, I will often click over to them, right? And I'm like, ooh, I want to learn about, you know, Twitter bots or the Colorado River water usage or like whatever stuff people are talking about. Um, and very often as mm -hmm. I start to scroll through the site, there'll be some kind of sort of nifty kind of fancy interactive feature that sort of messes with motion in some way. It's sometimes it's like, sometimes it's parallax, right? So there's like a things in the foreground and the background are moving at different rates. And sometimes it is uh, graphs where all of a sudden you're scrolling down and then you keep moving your finger like you're scrolling down, but the graph starts to animate sideways. And those mm. kinds of things are actually just really hard for my brain to deal with. Like I can feel myself getting nauseated. And so I end up either skipping past them entirely, but mostly I just end up closing the window. Um, and so I, I don't, I like just literally skip all of those articles that I'm interested in, but like they've been presented in a way that I literally cannot process them healthily. So I started right. writing about that um, sort of, I started complaining about it on Twitter and then I decided to turn it into an actual like proper article and maybe give people some advice on how to avoid it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. Always the right way to start is just critique on yeah. crit- on Twitter and then write the longer, yes. more thoughtful piece. Right. Okay. Um, so yeah. So I uh, so I looked through some a bunch of sort of example sites of like cool things that people had made in the last few months and and found some patterns in the way that in the way that things were problematic um, and things are often problematic. I think because we sort of mess with the physics of the browser. Like the browser actually has physics, right? Like you you scroll a certain amount with your finger or you press the uh, arrow key up or down and and there's an expectation of what kind of movement that is going to trigger. And we've had years and years and years of training of like, here's what happens when you move your finger a quarter inch on the trackpad or on your mouse ball or whatever. Um, and so right. when people mess with that, right. it's kind of the same thing as being in like... Uh, I just went to Universal Studios a few weeks ago. And so it's sort of like being in one of those like 4D rides where you put on the glasses and they like, like Star Tours yeah. style, right? Where they like make you think you're falling down a hole mm-hmm. um, because they're just sort of playing with the the physics of what you're looking at. Um, but no one's doing anything nearly as cool as Star Tours on journalism websites. <laughs> Well, I can say, I mean, I don't know what it was like for you, but we I went to Universal a couple of years ago and we went to the Simpsons yes. ride, which was one of those 4D rides and everybody got got sick. So I don't know how you managed was, to do I, that at all. I took a lot of breaks um, uh, and, and frankly did not enjoy the rides that much. Um, I liked the Dr. Seuss yeah, rides. They were about my speed. I was like, oh, sneetches. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so it's mostly this contrary to what you would expect in some ways, right? Like you mentioned earlier, scrolling down through the page and suddenly the graph is moving in the opposite yeah, direction. Yeah, and there's also expect. a lot around just sort of scroll jacking in general. So like moving, yeah. sometimes when we'll still be moving down the page, but the physics will change a little bit so that like something in the left-hand column is moving at a different speed than something in the right-hand column, usually for some sort of data effect, right? To sort of mm-hmm. show how, uh, you know, a right. diaspora spread over a geographic area or to show how something moved over time or, um, you know, there's all kinds of things. Even in like the original, um, in like Snowfall, there was... Uh, there was a whole set of like 3D images of the mountain that would spin around um, and right. show you like where the avalanche happened. And they just sort of something you do on the page triggers a huge amount of like visual motion that is very disorienting for someone who has any sort of visual processing issues or or really any kind of like nausea tendencies or motion sickness tendencies. And that's, of course, like for me, that's very acute all the time. Um, but it's also the kind of thing that if you didn't get enough sleep last night or like you're maybe a little bit under the weather or, you know, you were on a bumpy bus this morning or maybe you're on a train right now that's rocking back and forth. Um, yeah. It's not necessarily someone who has like a chronic medical condition. It might just be someone who's in a situation where they're like, yep, this is too much for my threshold. Yeah. I was going to ask, does it depend on whether you're at a desktop or whether you're on a you know, mobile device, a, a phone or a tablet? For me, it really doesn't. Um, I think, I mean, everyone's threshold is different. And yeah. and there are certainly sometimes because of responsive sites and because of the way that they are programmed, sometimes the implementation on one device will be problematic or the implementation on another device isn't, which is part of why I think when I, I talked about in the article a little bit, the idea of giving people the choice of whether or not they're going to sort of engage in your interactiveness. Um, because... 
because it really is up to the person. And it might be that on a Tuesday morning on their phone, it's fine. But on a Thursday afternoon on their tablet, it's not fine. As a creator, you cannot predict that, right? You can't like, you can't know everything about people's context. And so giving the user the choice for what, how they're going to experience your information uh, rather than forcing something on them uh, feels to me like just a more sane and, and helpful to go. So when you think about choice in that way, let's take Snowfall. I think you know, most people listening to the show probably have, have gone through Snowfall at least multiple times. Um, so when you think about choice in the example of Snowfall with the 3D presentation of the, of the mountain, um, do you think about choice being the ability, not so much that it triggers this motion in the 3D model, or is it so that so the user selects whether, when that happens, or is it more, let's just make this a fully text-based approach where it's sort of like a separate, you know, a separate environment altogether? I think there's some of each, and some of this is going to be like what the effect you're going for is, and some of it is honestly going to be like internal political, like in your organization who gets excited by which thing and what kinds of things get funded, right? Like realistically speaking, like there are, there are all kinds of sort of human factors in this. Um, I think the sort of the simplest way for a lot of these things is just literally to put like a play button on them or a pause button. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to like the idea that we should not assume consent in anything, but especially on the web, um, that we should start with things paused and let people press play if they would like to see motion, because there are things that, are actually completely fine for my brain to deal with as long as they're not unexpected. Um, like a lot of the kinds of animations in Snowfall are like, obviously they're cool, right? Like seeing the path of the yeah. avalanche and everything is really interesting, but it needs to be on my terms. It needs to be where I'm like, okay, I'm sitting in a place in a well-lit room. I'm ready to press play on this. Um, as opposed to someone else just saying like, you got to this point in the article, here we go. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, I think we do tend to do a lot of stuff that is fancy for the sake of being fancy. And there are times when a text alternative and like a well-written alternative is a really viable option. Um, one of the things I touched on in my article is the idea that we, in 2018 right now, um, with the state of the web where it is, a lot of people on the web are on a page because they want to read it, right? Not because they want to watch it or experience it or immerse themselves in it, but because they want to read a story. And we, I think we forget that sometimes and we try to be like sort of super fancy and interactive to the detriment of like letting it so that people who want to read can just read a story. Right. I mean, I think, I don't know about your perspective, but I think there's been in some ways a pullback from interactivity, uh, at least in data viz, where a lot of things seem to be moving back towards static graphs. And I would guess that's because they're cheaper to make and they're easier to make. And I'm not sure you get a lot of value of clicking on the column chart and seeing the tooltip pop up. But I'm not sure if, if you see the same things in a lot of the a lot of the work that you're doing in the websites that you visit. I think that is true among people who are paying attention, if that makes sense. Like, I think there is a, there's a subset of people who is sort of caring about this stuff, right? And it's, it's sort of the same thing with responsive sites in general right now. Like, I, I think it's sort of the same kind of trend is that for a while people were like, look at all the cool stuff you can do. Like HTML5 is amazing. Um, and then people were like, oh, it's actually really hard to do this well. And we do better with our budgets and our energy and our attention 
to to sort of be simpler, to do simple things very well instead of to be sort of fancy pants for no reason. Um, or for a reason that is great but doesn't have an ROI that sort of warrants the the money and the time and the attention. Um, but I also think that that's like we probably see that more because we care about that stuff. And I think that there's a much bigger number of people out in the world who are having their own journey of discovery and getting to a point where they're like, do you know what you can do with HTML5? <laughs> and then wanting to do something really exciting. And like, I assume they're going to get to the point, you know, in a couple of years where they're like, ooh, this is harder than it looks. Um, yeah. But we sort of, we're sort of seeing it as an early trend because we're nerds. Yeah, I also wonder for the casual reader of data-driven news reporting, that when they see the cool interactive thing on the Times or the Washington Post, they're drawn to that because everybody sort of gets excited about the cool, new, shiny thing. And they go to that cool, new, shiny thing. And I, it would be interesting to know how many of those people actually read the thing or, you know, get to the first cool, shiny little bobble and, and then say, OK, I'm that I don't really care. Well, and are the cool, shiny things being put on the right things, right? Like, are we advertising things about, I don't know, like convertible bond markets or something that like already have a niche audience and have this complex data and so we're using fancy, shiny stuff? Or are we using it for like sort of more popular story? I feel like I see it a lot on stories that are like, that are just so niche that it's like, this is great that you spent all this energy on this, but like... I don't know who's going to read it. Right. No, I think that's right. And I think your, your point about the ROI is really interesting. I you know, was talking to someone yesterday, actually, or for a workshop of, you know, what is the ROI to, to a data viz? And I'm trying to think about, you know, what does that curve look like? Because I don't think it's a line that's sort of just curving downward, right? I think it, you know, there's like the bar chart you make in Excel real quickly, and then you probably put a little more time into it and you get a lot more, uh, the ROI goes up on that. And then there's a point where it's diminishing returns, where you're, making things fancier for no real payoff. And so those might be the interactive static graphs, right? Where it's like, I can click on a line and that line highlights, but okay, it really doesn't do anything for me. And then I get to these more scrolly telling, super fancy things, but presumably there they have their own separate curve because they're in a different part of the funding and, and how much it costs to make those sorts of things. Yeah. And are those, are those things that couldn't be told any other way? Right. Right. Like sometimes there are some things where like a graph or a chart is incredibly illuminating. And then there are some times when you're like, yep, that's pretty much the same thing mm -hmm. you said in two sentences. And it's, this didn't, you know, this did not illuminate from the like heart of the yeah. story. I mean, I think that's a, the, the key question, right? Like when is it time to put in these big investments into these big narrative fancy things? And when is it not? And I feel like we still don't really have a great grasp on that. Yeah. And it, I'm sure it's different for every publication, too. But the fact that, I don't know that this is a fact, uh, this feels to me like something that most editorial sort of guidelines don't even touch on. Hmm. It feels to me like the choices are all being made kind of one-off where someone is, is um, someone in the newsroom would get excited about doing some particular visualization and there's not any sort of formal process to say like, is this the right visualization right mm -hmm. now? Um, because I mean, and that makes sense because we generally don't build those kinds of guidelines and processes until we've sort of had enough experience with the outcomes of all yeah. of them to realize that like, oh, sometimes this was worth it and sometimes it wasn't. And we're only probably just now getting to the point where there have been enough visualizations and interactive features and things over time in a single publication with a single set like editorial team 
to be able to judge whether or not it worked was worth it so that you could actually establish guidelines to be consistent about your decision making. Yeah. I mean, there was a time when I was interested in finding the standard data visualization style guides. And it was sort of like amazing to me how hard they were to find. I mean, there are yes. guidelines about, you know, what you put in the CMS and guidelines about, you know, how you write and how you do a headline and where it's placed on the page. But there was very few uh, guides about what size is the title? You know, what colors do we use for the first three lines? You know, that sort of thing. And I would guess that, you know, just like you just said, it's probably even uh, less common to have something for interactives of what their styles and guidelines are. Yeah. And like, what are our rules about? Like, do we assume consent? Do we autoplay things? Right. Do we uh, have pause buttons? And even just like that, that obviously touches on so much stuff in terms of like, are the pause buttons always in the lower left? Are yeah. they, do you have to hover over them to see them? Like it sort of ripples into lots of decisions, but I think a lot of people aren't really asking those questions yet. No, I, yeah. And I think that, and then there's the question of consistency across the site. If you are, you know, whatever the New York times and you're gonna have the pause button, uh, if that's going to be your rule, does that have to be applied hundred percent of the time? Or are there, are there exceptions to that rule and how do you make those determinations? Yep. So you've mentioned a couple of things that people can do to avoid the let's not make people uh, get sick um, in terms of, you know, uh, basically obeying physics, um, which is kind of just a general good rule of thumb. I think. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> you talked about consent, basically play buttons, pause buttons, letting people sort of choose when something is going to happen. What other techniques or strategies can can people use when they are trying to think about these sorts of issues? And I, I would sort of broaden it not just for people who have, you know, sort of like you mentioned, not just medical issues, but, or medical concerns, but a broader group of people who just, you know, don't want to be scroll checked and don't want the thing to spin around because it's really, you know, they don't need that. They just want to know what is the point of this, of this graph of this story. I think a, a good thing for people to, to sort of remember is, is that reading is, Reading is real big on the web. Um, and there's a reason many of us like things like Pocket and RSS feeds and stuff like that is because they give us a stripped down version of otherwise fancy pages and sites. Um, and so give people that without making them go to a third party service. Like if you have a really fancy, interactive, interesting version of a story, then make sure there's also like a text version that just like doesn't that doesn't try to be interactive and doesn't try to be fancy and moving um just alternative especially like that that's right. a nice thing for people who are uh feeling sort of neurologically overwhelmed it's also really important for people who are on like a data capped plan which in the united states is going to be like mm. lower income people people with disabilities uh any communities of color like any of sort of intersections of those groupings, uh, people who are living in rural areas with crappy uh, cell coverage on indigenous reservations, like all kinds of things that if you are forcing them to download real big pictures and big graphs and autoplaying videos, um, that's costing them actual dollars on their cell plan, right? There's a literal economic cost to those people. Uh, and so giving people an option to just have the words um, and if you can't tell the story with just words, I feel like that's a bigger problem to solve. It's great to have, mm, it's great yeah. to have visuals as, as an assist, or if the story can't be told with just words, uh, that feels to me like something that needs to be addressed as sort of a, 
a larger approach to your story? Like, what do you need to break down further to make this work as a story? Right. Yeah, I think that's right on. I, you know, the uh, a few years ago, I don't know if this one comes up into your list of things that that uh, make your head hurt, but the New York Times did the yield curve project a few years ago, where it was like this 3D contour map, and I was reading it on my way to work, and I was on my phone, and in the New York Times app, it was just I think five or six static images, and it was really neat. Um, and the story was really good and it explained it really well, but I couldn't figure out why people were so excited when I'm looking at my Twitter feed. And then when I got to the office and opened it up in the browser, you were able to move the whole thing around and, you know, you could twist and you could turn it. Um, but for me, you know, just having those six static images were the things that really told the story well. And now I feel like, no, that's probably a couple of years ago already. Now I feel like the ability to have the same project on multiple devices, multiple platforms is that much easier. And yet maybe it's too much flash, too much. Well, and that also speaks to me, it feels like about the idea that you should make sure that the the less interactive versions of your story are not second class citizens. Um, in that it would have mm. been nice for you reading the more static version, which still had a great story, it would have been nice for you to know that there was going to be interactivity if you viewed it on a different device. Uh, that sounds a little bit oh, right. like this best right. viewed in Netscape Navigator 6. Uh, but there's the idea that like just because someone's reading the text-only version on their phone doesn't mean that they are completely uninterested in a fancier, flashier version that maybe has some video content as well. So like if you're going to give people a text version, let them know what what's different between that version and the other version. Um, otherwise, they might not be getting all of the information and and maybe at some other time they would be interested in it yeah yeah that's great i mean these are all great so i want to um before we wrap up i want to ask what else you have to work on i'm going to guess that writing this uh this piece probably took you a bit of time because a lot of the things that you show are, are a little flashy and you know even a little flashy for me <laughs> um but i'm curious what other things you have uh would have what you know you what's funny is that days. um when I was writing the piece, I didn't take those screen captures myself. And I wrote to my editors and I was like, hey, I don't actually know how to do these screen captures. Do you want me to learn? And they were like, we'll do it because it would make you sick. And so like, we'll do the screen captures, which and I was like, oh, that's <laughs> nice. Thank you. Uh, and then they wrote me back a couple hours later and they were like, that is nice. I totally made myself sick. I'm not even a person who's super sensitive to this, but like going back and forth <laughs> through these scrolls was really, really difficult for me. And, and I was like, oh. Okay. Yay. Like, um, yeah. So otherwise point to check. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, otherwise, um, I'm on Twitter a lot. Uh, I'm a consultant so people can hire me to help Mm -hmm. them figure out CMS problems and stuff. I'm actually in the midst of writing. It's not quite like a book. It's more like an essay collection. Um, about it's a little bit about like being human in a tech world and the teams that we work on and sort of being human and vulnerable and having to deal with uh, our own kind of personal psychologies in team contexts and in product contexts and things like that. Great. Great. Well, I'm going to keep my eyes open for that one. And um, I'll make sure to uh, share, of course, the source article for those who haven't seen it and uh, link to your Twitter feed so people can uh, can follow and watch along and um, maybe even get back to you about the strategies that you, they use or maybe fail to use and want to use. 
um, to enhance their pieces. So, um, Eileen, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, this thanks for having me. Super interesting. And thanks to everyone for tuning in to this week's episode. Uh, I hope you learned a lot and uh, may rethink some of the things that you are including in your data viz projects. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode. If you have comments or questions or suggestions, please do let me know on the site or on Twitter. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>